This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. I did say hi, but it didn't come through. Now it's coming through. Today's show combines two of my favourite topics, talking and bathing. First up, we will be speaking with speech therapist Dr Brenda Carey. I always articulate very carefully when we have a speech therapist on the show. In the five years since Brenda was last here, she has presented at various international conferences whilst maintaining a busy private practice as well as becoming fluent in Italian. Bellissimo. Brenda is going to be taking us through the top five myths about stuttering. And let me tell you about some of these myths. I thought some of them were true. So prevalent are they? And uh, I guess so uh, ignorant am I. Dr. Carey ci insegna dopo. Next, we welcome back on the show another old friend, Professor Mark Cohen. He is the go-to man for research on anything complementary health-wise. As one of Australia's first professors in complementary medicine, he has seen and experienced it all. Today he'll be chatting with us about his latest venture, <laughs> so I can't, extreme bathing. It conjures up all sorts of ideas in my head, but I'll leave it to your imagination as to guess what sort of ablution... Mark might be talking about, but he is going to reveal all about this new phenomena. Just to repeat it, it's called extreme bathing. And we have a new news reporter on the panel too. Pascal has a degree in chemistry and pharmacology from Monash University and will soon be doing a Master's of Psychology in the UK. Joining her and me, Dr Mel Practice, will be the ever-effervescent and brainy nurse EpiPen, as well as the bubbly and brilliant Dr G-Spot. That's just too many super geniuses for a Sunday morning, but we will go. So stick with us for the next hour of Radiotherapy. That uh, Robert Palmer intro never gets old. 30 years on the track, don't you reckon? It's still good. Yeah. Nurse, have you been? Good morning. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I oh, can hear you, Dal. I can't. I'll turn up your volume. Okay, turn, turn me up. I will turn you up. Turn me on, <laughs> turn me up. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, Dr G-Spot, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. It sounds like a great show today. Isn't I can't it? wait. Extreme bathing and talking. Oh. Two of my favourite things as well. <laughs> you are, and let me tell you, I know both these guests very, very well. They're going to knock your socks off with what they are going to tell us. We welcome to the panel pa- Pascal. Pa- Pascal. I, I was yes. calling you Pascale or Pascal? Which Pascal. One? Pascal. Yeah. So, Pascal, you uh, have been working uh, in a large psych. Psychiatric research unit, is yes, that right? Yes, I've been working alongside Dr G Swart. Right, what's that like? 
Oh, it's great. She's great. <laughs> She's got loads of interesting research going on at the moment. I did pay her off before the show. Thank you. <laughs> Advertising her. <laughs> yeah, so I've been really enjoying that, actually. She's got a variety of topics that she researches, and it's really interesting. Lots to do with appearance and... Genital cosmetic surgery has been a really interesting one, actually. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about it outside in the green yeah. room that um, plastic surgeries have been in the paper. But, and maybe we will talk about that. Uh, we'll give it a whole segment in a, in a future show. Yeah. Pascal, uh, we were also talking about some a paper published in The Lancet that you're having a look at. Yeah, and I was looking at a response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a response from people at Glasgow University. Um, the original paper was a large-scale trial published and it was looking at just basically the most effective course of treatment for schizophrenia. Right. And then um, these people from University of Glasgow wrote in to the um, Lancet um, commenting on the language that was used during this paper. They were... they kind of pointed out that they were using things such as patients um, were failing, basically. So let's just unpack that. Patients were failing the treatment. Yeah. Fair income. Yeah. They were using that sort of language. Yeah, and I really liked um, the last bits that they wrote, if you don't mind me reading it Mm, out. Um, As if this situation was not challenging enough for these schizophrenic patients... Are these people now being told that if their symptoms do not improve with a treatment, it is their failing? We would urge the psychiatric community to consider what is being communicated here, whether this language is helpful, and indeed whether this statement is even accurate. Is it really the patient's failure or a failure of the treatment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny that, that a pipe, that a journal like The Lancet would even... Uh, not have considered that in the original paper. I know, I found that really interesting. And I found it pretty amazing that they've written in and, like, pointed this out to yeah. such a, you know, yeah, the biggest science journal, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we, we, we talk about, you know, patients with schizophrenia or patients with asthma, you know. Yeah. Um, and that kind of language is just so important because you're not defined by one part of, let's say, an illness that you have. And yeah. for 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 the, the, the Lancet, mm, that's just so interesting. I wouldn't have thought so, but nonetheless, I guess uh, even big journals need uh, to be pulled up sometimes. Yeah, we talk about, like, a, you know, uh, kind of trying to abolish this stigma within communities, but if, you know, professionals in the field are talking this way and there's still obviously still a stigma within, you know, the mm. professional community, yeah, it questions how we can really go about this, like... Yeah, yeah I, abolishing the stigma. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of the Australian journals are the ones that I get rejected by when I put my papers in. <laughs> I, I, say, I mean, part of the guidelines are that you refer respectfully to patient groups um, and uh, in, in a way of, um, of dissipating that kind of, of stigma. It's, it's, it's really quite incredible that Lancet's done that. But anyway. Yeah. Um, and speaking of uh, disorders, or dis- is it a disease? Hemochromatosis. Yeah, it's a disease. It's a disease. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's hemochromatosis week. Yes. So I, that was my quiz question. Oh, sorry. Oh, I just, okay. Oh, who knows what week it is this week? So each, some well, many uh, um, conditions have uh, a day that is dedicated, or a week that's dedicated to raising awareness. And this week is hemochromatosis week. Ooh, ooh. So Rob and I met over a, a venisection bag many years ago so I'll backtrack now so Timothy we really went yeah, over a in, the gastro, in the gastro unit at the hospital uh, near the park I can't so remember. I'll tell you I'm going to tell you the whole story in a sec so hemochromatosis is a, a very common genetic disorder so they estimate about one in 200 Australians have this iron storage disorder. What? One in 200? Yes. That's high. That's bad. Really? And it's a recessive gene disorder and yeah. you need to have had a background from uh, a European family member. So, And that's where it's come through from um, Europe, right. that, that where we've the, that when they've come out on the tall ships and lived here, and hemochromatosis has been passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a problem where people absorb too much iron, mm. oh. and and therefore it's called an iron storage disorder. Oh. And uh, we commonly think about not enough iron mm. in yeah. people. Mm. That's more common, and uh, but then not many people know about too much iron. So 
Why do we need iron? Iron's a vital trace element that we get from our diet. It's uh, absorbed and we need it for red blood cells. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem with excess iron is that it sits in organs and it can cause damage to those organs because the body can't get rid of excess iron. Oh. So the... Um, the iron places or the storage places are liver and some joints and pancreas and heart are the common places where excess iron sits. So I'm just going to give you one of the issues about diagnosing it is that it presents like many other common disorders. Mm -hmm. So uh, people can talk about weakness and lethargy, weight loss, joint pain, abdominal pains, liver dysfunction. They probably don't complain about that, but it's picked up on a blood test. Mm -hmm. Sexual dysfunction, such as impotence or low sex drive. Many Mm -hmm. conditions can cause that or medications. Mm -hmm. Uh, Disorders of uh, menstruation. Body, loss of body hair and skin darkening. So it's they're wow. kind of pretty common symptoms. Yeah. So it would be hard to really think of hemochromatosis when you present with those things. Hmm. Would it be more common in men than women? Because women menstruate and therefore can get rid of some of the So, iron? good question, mm. Dr. Mao. So that happens that women do self-regulate with, um, men- with menstruation, right. but when they s- menopause, so ah. when they stop bleeding, that, that's course, when yeah. women will probably balance oh. out between men and women. So um, what we do to decrease the iron is we do a venesection. So that's like you, you stick a needle into someone and it's the same as donating blood. So you take 500 mils of blood and the blood bank does this for people. So if you've had this condition diagnosed, then you um, go to the blood bank so and that's you a can treatment. be bled. Just it's an diagno- easy peasy treatment. Wow. And people mm. live very well and healthy. And once it's first diagnosed, so can you remember the blood tests? Um, yeah, iron. <laughs> oh, no, so I know blood test. Transferrin. Oh, that's right, transferrin. That's right. So they're just markers of iron in the blood in the bloodstream. Yeah. And iron, Fe. 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 Right. So um, it's very easily treated. People do very well after this condition. So after oh, okay. it's diagnosed. And so if you think you might have it, or some a relative's got it, or you think you might have a it, relative, you, you go to yeah. your GP, and your GP yeah. will and just do say, the blood hey, test. by the way, I've got this in my family tree. Mind you, hopefully your GP's taken a good history if you going there for the first time and then and also we all need to remember lots of things that we tell gps um things in our past things like travel is often a thing people forget to tell and they present with fevers and all sorts of things and then they go oh hang on but i was in bali last week and so (laughs) but but so just remember things in your in your past or and and i was thinking in the shower this morning i was thinking that's where it's really important to pass on family stories. But in the shower? A, in the sh- well, in the shower. Why not? You pass on your family or stories in the bathtub. In the bathtub. So what? because we're having extreme bathing. Oh, you're thinking about the family stories in the bathtub. All <laughs> oh, right, I just didn't Very quite understand. Quick. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so yeah, pass on stories, pass on family histories. But uh, what I was going to say is that it, with donors, donor sperm, donor this, that, or the other, that. You might not know from uh, the the medical history from some of those people that you've um, got those sorts of fam- um, makeups, genetic makeups. Yeah. Um, but not all hemochromatosis is genetic, uh, because I remember when I was in medical school, we learnt about the Bantu tribes people in Africa who cooked with cast iron pots that weren't sealed. And when you're constantly scraping the iron off, they ingest so much iron, they can get hemochromatosis from that. How about that? How about that? Did you know? I told you something. So I can't remember the blood test for it, but I remember about Bantu tribes people can get it. Go, Dr. Coming up on the show, we will be speaking with Dr. Brenda Carey uh, about stuttering. But first, we have some sponsorship announcements to play for you all. Putting funk in your trunk. Three triple R. This is Radiotherapy. I am Dr. Mal Practice. Joining me are, joining me are Nurse Epi Penn, Pascale, uh, Dr. G-Spot, and Dr. Brenda Carey, speech therapist extraordinaire. I used to be Dr. Chatterbox. Have Did I you been, really? Is this oh, a demotion or a Have I, have I outed you? Yes, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Um, you, you've been on the show before. Yes, I have. So yeah. you kind of know the gig. It's 
very low key. Like a, I always tell people, it's like a dinner party. You just you just come over. We're having a chat. Without laugh. the food, though. <laughs> Without the food or the white. We, <laughs> we do need more food. I should bring in some croissants or something. Um, Brenda, you are uh, somebody who spent uh, pretty much most of your professional life specialising in stuttering. Yes, correct. Uh, and today you've brought in five myths mm-hmm. about yes. stuttering. I might just read off. Well, they're not necessarily myths. They're statements that I wanted to explore and see. Some of them are myths and some of them have a factual basis. So I shouldn't feel so bad about um, saying that one of them was right. Correct. Okay. <laughs> so let's look at this one. Uh Statement number one, stuttering begins after a stressful experience. I'd say that's a myth. What do you uh, ladies think in the opposite me? Stuttering begins after a stressful experience. Yes or no? In childhood, I think it could be linked. Mm -hmm. There could be some trauma around childhood and it's Mm -hmm. flared up something Mm -hmm. that maybe there was a propensity Mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good answer, actually. I'll get you to do to, to ch- uh, chime in on the next one um yeah it tends to happen a, l- a lot of parents come in and say you know it happened exactly when the second child was born or you know um, by mistake i locked my child outside the house for five minutes and when they came in i think they started stuttering from that point mm. and so on but it tends to happen when children already have a predisposition so it may be a trigger but it's not um the cause of stuttering and of course you know, if you think about it, if it was, then when awful things are happening in countries, um, civil war and um, natural disasters and so on, you would suddenly get a, a much higher rate of stuttering. Um, stuttering is a speech motor programming problem and it is it does have a genetic basis. Um, twin studies, adoption studies um, and so on have shown this to be the case. Um, and neuroimaging is now happening, which is showing it also to be the case. Tell us about that. I mean, what do you see if you scan the brain of somebody who stutters? So, you know, um, this occurs on PET scanning, um, where some areas typically used in speakers who do not stutter will be uh, showing hot spots and areas that people who don't stutter uh, use um, are not used. So they're, they're different areas being accessed, it seems, in talking tasks. Do we know what the name of the area is in the brain? Um, that's getting beyond my oh, okay. level of... We need, we need someone who specialises in brain imaging for that. But, um, and, of course, the big question also is, are these um, subsequent to stuttering or are they precursors to stuttering? Um, and so far, that, that is, it's very hard to get children, very, very young children, as you know, to remain still. Um, but it seems that, um, that some of those changes are actually um, before children begin to speak. And certainly with therapy... Uh, some changes are made as well. So you see new patterns um, once adults or adolescents have had therapy. Um, if Let's just get down to definitions. I mean, we all know what stuttering is, but I mean, is there a World Health Organization definition of what stuttering is or is there some special committee that says mm-hmm. stuttering is when you do X, Y and Z? It's interesting because there are many, def- many, many definitions. Yeah. However... Um, none of them has been found to be completely adequate because somebody can call themselves a person who stutters and you might hear no stuttering. Mm-hmm. So somebody might be working extraordinarily mm-hmm. well yeah. Or, yeah. or hard to conceal the stuttering. Um, and and conversely, uh, we might all know of people who we think might stutter um, but who don't identify with that diagnosis, don't think they stutter. Mm. So um, although, you know, there's no really um, definition that everybody's comfortable with, it tends to be an involuntary repetition, blocking or cessation of sounds. And you can have accompanying social um, anxiety disorder. You can also have accompanying facial and um, physical components to it. Mm-hmm. And again, it would be hard to know what's chicken and egg in that situation, wouldn't it? I mean, obviously, if, you're, if, if you do stutter, then you are more likely to feel worried about how people mm-hmm. are going to appraise you. And then if you're worried about that, that would likely worsen the stuttering. Absolutely, no? yes. And this is some... So it's a complex relationship with anxiety, but this is being explored again, <clears throat> younger and younger in children. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems that the negative... Um, 
negative valuations or negative reactions that very young children, studies have shown as young as three years of age, so in kindergartens, yeah. uh, children can receive negative reactions to their stuttering, that these sow the seeds for anxiety and social, social anxiety disorder in particular. Um, and certainly amongst adults who seek treatment, there's a 34-fold increase of social anxiety disorder. How much? 34 wow. 34, 3-4. Exactly. Yes, so massively at risk. um, uh, And, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody who stutters is anxious or socially anxious, but amongst those who seek treatment, you know, it's a very, very high high, um, correlation. Yeah, yeah. And I guess also those who seek treatment are more likely to seek treatment because they're worried about stuttering. True, so. although you know, it does make you wonder those who, because only the minority of people who stutter seek treatment. Yeah, yeah. So is it that the people who are not seeking treatment are so so impacted and so socially um, avoidant that they don't even want to make the phone call to step into a speech pathologist clinic? Um, or is it that they, it just doesn't bother them in the same way? We don't know that yet. Really? There hasn't been research about... We, you know, the so it used to be the case that people used to think that the psychological impact of stuttering was always something that followed stuttering, and was really if you took away the stuttering, you were going to remove the psychological impact. And now that's known not to be the case. It's fascinating. When is it usually picked up? I mean, are we talking preschool, kindergarten, school? Yeah, um, so typically stuttering begins between two and a half and three and a half years of age. And um, that, that was, I think, going to be one of my, my facts was um, does it begin, you know, when <laughs> sorry, does it begin? Three. When, <laughs> fact three. Um, so it typically begins at a crucial stage in language development um, when a balance is tipped in some children who are genetically vulnerable where um, they have difficulty coordinating that speech and language requirement at that point. And it happens when children um, hit a lot of intonation in their speech. So, you know, mama gone becomes, where are you gone? You know, and it, it becomes a more complex motor task uh. to put in all those um, those fine changes that are needed Um, and that typically happens between two and a half and three and a half years of age but children who are delayed in language development will therefore begin stuttering later and children who are very accelerated in language development will begin earlier. Are there other physical correlates with stuttering in kids? Like, do kids who stutter, do they, are there any other things that they do differently um, um, to, to kids who don't stutter? No, it's more common in boys. Um, oh, really? So, yes, and, and oh. also girls are much better at recovering from stuttering with a naturally, yes. So um, wow. in childhood, the, the ratio is about three to two, so still more boys and girls, but... When we look at adults, it's more like five to one. Really? So m- way more ma- men stutter than women in adulthood or continue to stutter. Are there biological or psychological <laughs> or social theories which may account for that? Because that's fascinating. You know, for speech pathologists, if you if you coordinated your files, when we had paper files to pink or blue, <laughs> you would very quickly run out. And this is not for just stuttering. So yeah. for all, all language and speech yeah. Disorders are way more common in boys. Have they, have they looked at any genetic markers? So there's a prediction of which children might be more mm. prone to. Stuff. Yeah, so there was actually a, a ongoing an ELV study at the Murdoch Research Institute being done, um, and that's one of many that have looked at predictors. Um, being male is um, has tended to be a um, mm. a negative for the prognosis of ongoing stuttering. Um, surprisingly, one of the findings in that um, in the elves cohort was mothers with very very high language, um, very good language, uh, tended to have children who were more likely to stutter. What is so that? High expectations of the child? Um, no, no, no. It could be that genetic that their brains, the children's brains, were trying to achieve those language milestones quicker achieve them or it could also be that those parents were modeling language you know it's both environment and genetics so you know i guess it's like trying to get a two-year-old to play bark you know even if they (laughs) can um intellectually or cognitively get it getting their the fine motor movements required to do that 
So, so their um, brains work kind of working faster than them. Well, the motor coordination required uh, perhaps at younger age may be more tricky when when they're trying to say more. Um, and other factors that have been um, looked at um, have really yielded inconclusive results. But, mm-hmm. for example, a family member who continues to stutter, so stuttering that hasn't spontaneously remitted, tends to be a negative prognosis. They you tends to carry a negative prognosis. If, the, if your patient has a relative who continues to stutter. Exactly. Right. So not aware as opposed to having recovered from stuttering. Yeah, well, that kind of um, makes sense. What about... Um, people who uh, move to a culture with a different language, like, say, somebody who comes from overseas, mm-hmm. uh, they, are the kids more likely to stutter then? No, but... Um, so stuttering tends to go to both languages. Right. Um, okay. But it can be at different levels. So some people who stutter stutter more when they speak fast. Most of us, if we start going faster and faster, you, you, uh, you know, we'll start having some repetitions. Um, but other people stutter um, when they're trying to think of the word more. So things that tend to prompt normal non-fluency, for example, um, if we're thinking of a word in another language, yeah. if that slows us down yeah, yeah, and yeah. slowing down is helpful to our speech motor system, then that's they might stutter less in their less... Um, expert language, whereas if they tend to stutter more when they are have less brain space, so they're thinking about you know what's the next word, where is it, sometimes that can tip more stuttering. So it can go either way, but typically if you stutter in one language, you're going to stutter in another. Just the the amounts of stuttering may vary. Yeah. Um, it's funny you should say that because what came to mind is that. Um Quite often when I'm socially anxious, um, I I have word-finding difficulties Mm. um, Mm. so that I talk more, but I talk around the topic. circumlocution. Circumlocutious, Mm. yeah, because I can't find the word. So I just just, become, what's the word, garrulous. And I can hear myself talking and I'm thinking, shut up, Mel, just shut up. (laughs) But I can't can't find the word. Um, One of the other um, statements which you had for us today was this. Stuttering goes away with rapping and or singing. And I thought the answer oh. to that was probably yes. What do you think over here? That's, you know, this whole conversation, I've been thinking of that movie, The King's Speech. And uh, I was just going, is that a legit therapy? <laughs> like, Jeffrey Rush did it, so it must be right. <laughs> um, so I thought there may be some evidence for that, although I'm starting to doubt mm. it listening to this conversation. Mm. What do you think? Epi? Uh, I think it would be helpful. I yeah. think because you're learning patterns and mm. the words will just pop in on the notes and it's not, it's, yeah, I think, I think it would be helpful. Mm. One of the incredibly frustrating things for people who stutter is that there are these fluency-inducing conditions like talking to a pet, um, talking to a younger child, speaking to yourself in a room on your own. Um, all of these conditions, talking with someone else at the same time, so reading together or speaking in oh, like a right. choral yes. kind of situation, mm-hmm. they tend to make stuttering disappear, right. which is incredibly frustrating for people who then stutter um, in other situations. Ah, yes. Um, yes, rap therapy does tend to reduce stuttering and it's been used for many, many years, even centuries perhaps, um, because it might stabilise, it might make it easier when everything's even, syllable timing, um, the syllables are the same length, there's the same sort of emphasis. And I think it's Ed Sheeran who has said that copying Eminem helped him. He credited that mm-hmm. with helping him to stop stutter, to stop stuttering because he used to practice, he said, I think for days and days learning Eminem's raps. And um, he's said that that helped him to stop stuttering. Ah. Are you, are you, will you be touching on some of the letters or words that pull people up a bit more? Yeah, that's another interesting one. Um, so some people who stutter believe that particular sounds are very tricky and are trickier than other sounds and they tend to stutter more on those. However, for each individual, those vary. So, And they typically are related to words or sounds that they have to say very often. So, for example, they will often get tripped up on their own name. And it's because they will have had that experience, which is so embarrassing and so scarring of introducing themselves. And then, you know, my name is... And then the word doesn't come out and they form that connection. You know, they don't necessarily think of the hundreds of times, thousands of times that they didn't have difficulty with that sound, 
but it becomes so mm. uh, ingrained so easily that, you know, okay, I can't say a b- mm. sound. Mm. But um, some of them will say, it's, it's strange, some will actually change their names and say, now I can't say that sound. Mm. Or they'll not say the name of their suburb because they have identified that that sound is tricky for them. But if they move suburbs, then the new suburb can become tricky. So mm. it's really the experience and the negative experience that they often get and how, how awful they feel when they get stuck. Mm. I was going to ask Brenda, so it sounds like the feedback that occurs from others when they stutter is really important. So if someone, say, grew up in a really encouraging environment where the stuttering was just accepted as part of that person's speech, do you think they might have a better chance of recovery than, say, someone who was potentially punished or scolded for stuttering? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I think this is the same for all challenges that people can have is that you know how people react to it um and yes i'm even you know scolding is at the extreme but in those three-year-old kids that i spoke about that study that was done in um in australia actually with kids on had backpacks on every child in the kindergarten had this little backpack and there were microphones in the backpacks and so that nobody knew which child stuttered and all the kids had to do the same thing to try to get as natural a uh, an image of what was happening and it wasn't you know ha ha you stutter it was just turning their back when stuttering took up time so mm. if one child was you know explaining something and then and then and then and then and then mm. other kids would just reject them by turning their back so certainly promoting in schools um, tolerance and understanding of stuttering, um, telling people that it's something that just happens, like hiccuping. It's not mm. under their control. Mm. Yeah, I was just wondering, as a speech pathologist, what does your therapy look like for when they, when people with um, stuttering go to you? Mm. Varies hugely dependent on the age. It doesn't look like Jeffrey Rush's therapy, I've got to say. <laughs> We're not sitting on people anymore saying, breathe! Um, so for young children, they are highly responsive to behavioural treatment. So it can, stuttering can be brought under behavioural control and um, the therapy just looks like fun for the kids. Children are praised for being fluent and gently, very gently corrected or modelled when they stutter. Um, as children get older, um, more direct therapies needed. And for adults, it can be like learning another language. They're taught to coordinate their speech in a way that is suppressing or incompatible with stuttering. And that takes enormous concentration and effort and motivation. How long? No, actually, we might head to a break, Brenda. Uh, we'll come back because one of the questions I want to ask you was how long does it take uh, you working with somebody to, to basically make a dent or dint in 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 their stuttering and uh, what is it that you actually do but you'll hang with us for a a little bit because what i'm going to do now is i'm going to play some sponsorship announcements you are listening to three triple r independent melbourne radio 102.7 three triple r with us in the studio is dr brenda carey talking with us about stuttering did you like the italian inflection i just did on that brenda i thought you'd pick that up um we, we really just need to cover a little bit about the treatment of somebody who stutters, what you do and kind of how long it takes, that kind of stuff. Varies very much depending on age, but um, for preschool children, um, stuttering therapy can typically take about three to six months for stuttering okay. to be brought to very low levels. Um, stuttering is a relapse-prone disorder, so okay. parents and therapists need to really stay vigilant to it and um, very gradually withdraw those behavioural treatments that are provided. Um, but stuttering, um, Australia is leading the world in stuttering treatment for preschool children. So there have been more treatment trial publications out of Australia than in any other country by, you know, a long, long shot. Really? Yes. How, come, yes. how does that happen? Ah, well, we're very uh, practical and pragmatic and we like to get to the therapy. So different countries look at theories and um, causes and other things, um, acceptance and important things. You say that trying not to be disparaging. No, 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 I'm not. (laughs) Important things, you know, people need to also learn to live with stuttering and that's another whole whole show. Um, But 
in Australia there is the Australian Study and Research Centre which has been very um, successful in getting large grants and have put through many um, PhDs and, and studies that have been published and I think 80% there was recently a statistic 80% of the uh, treatment trial publications have come from Australian authors worldwide. So, yeah, it can be treated quite quickly. Really? Really. can be treated quite quickly. That was recognised by the Austra- by um, the, U- the US um, Foundation. So um, they were given some prizes at the Australian Southern Research Centre for that. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. blown over. 80% of the, 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 the research on stuttering treatment, treatment yes. comes yes. from Australia. Yes, yes, in the last five, five years, ten years. Is that... Um, but I do want to get to treatment at other ages, yeah. and um, while it's different and still needs to, um, still needs people still need to be vigilant about the the possibility of relapse. It can also be effective, so it's um, it's something that can be addressed, and people should feel hopeful about stuttering treatment. Um, we just had a caller who uh, has called in to say that there is a University of Queensland study on stuttering looking at DNA factors. Have you heard of that one, Brenda? Yes, and there's currently also at, um, at Murdoch Research Institute, they're looking at um, asking people who stutter for um, small saliva samples and um, I've got nodding to the right here, so other people have heard about it. So, mm. um, yes, do Google if you'd like to participate. Um, Murdoch Research Institute and uh, also um, University of Queensland. Also, is it true this is from our caller. Thank mm-hmm. you, caller. Uh, is it true that most male stutterers that most male stutterers are also left-handed? So this is not um, one of those. Uh, yes, th- there is a hemispheric sort of um, myth that people, you know, it's being it's teaching people who were mm. naturally left-handers to then use their right hand. There's no evidence for that. Right. Yeah. Oh, really? No. There you go. Yeah. Brenda, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Um, we've got to get you back in less than five years' time. And we can do <laughs> the entire show so in much. Italian. Oh, certo. <laughs> certo. <laughs> How good was that? Thanks so much for Thank coming. Thank you in. so much. Cheers. Bye bye. Soothe your soul. Three triple R. Um, Professor Mark Cohen is in the studio. Uh, I was just uh, saying before in the green room, um, we've been friends for about, uh, this is going to age us, Mark, about 50 years. <laughs> Ever since, I'm just going to tell, tell the listeners a story. When we were in prep together, our, our prep teacher said, OK, I want you all to make a musical instrument. You know, so most of us made bongos or drumsticks. The future Professor Mark Cohen made a six-string tunable guitar. This is in prep. <laughs> oh, one of those brainy it all, kids. It, it all went well. <laughs> it must be hereditary because my son has just done a Luther course of work experience and he's just made a guitar. Uh, which, well, of course, Luther. Yeah, I'm, I'm guitar making. Get away. In Richmond, yeah. He's master guitar maker. He's just spent work experience doing that. How about that? Mm. There you go. It is genetic. We found the gene for guitar making. <laughs> so, um, Mark, just, just uh, let the listeners know a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, your titles and so forth. Oh, that'll take too long. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did a whole bunch of uni stuff for 30 years and um, you now, now I'm retired and I'm having a good time bathing and, and having <laughs> creating worldwide wellness. No, but, uh, Mark, Mark, please. What did you do I at RMIT? Well, you yeah. are a professor. Well, yeah, I did a medical. Well, Rob and I, we went through primary school, high school, medical school together. Then I did a couple of PhDs, as you do. You know, one in electrical computer systems engineering, another one in Chinese medicine. Um, got involved with lifestyle medicine for a long time, looking at integrative medicine and the effect of... Basically, I wanted to know how to have a good time. I was just... I didn't care about healing sick people. I wanted to have fun myself. So I learned about wellness and um, got involved with the spa industry and the wellness industry and um, started doing research on nutrition and yoga and meditation and um, health retreats and, um, yeah, uh, herbal medicine. Wrote yeah. textbooks on herbal medicine at RMIT. I was professor for six, 16 years um, in the School of Health Sciences. I retired last year because I was too busy doing other fun stuff to just work in, in a, you know, the bureaucracy of that. I still got six PhD students and we're doing work on, you know, I've got Lauren Burns, who's gold medalist in Taekwondo. We're looking at elite athletic performance and looking at um, healthy homes and health hazards in the home and looking at um, the effects of hot springs and sauna bathing. So you basically uh, transited from a, um, sort of a disease disorder-focused 
uh, career into a wellness type of career, looking at how to improve health Absolutely. and wellness. And that was all selfish because I want to be well. <laughs> okay. We all have our motivations. Yeah. Um, and you were telling me about this idea of bathing and extreme bathing. Just, just tell us well, a bit about that. Well, I, I was thinking last year, you know, if I want to have an impact on global health, what's the biggest impact I can have? And I'm part of a group called the Global Wellness Summit, and we have this mm. moonshot for health. You know, what's our unattainable goal that we can achieve globally to improve health? And it came to me that the single most potent intervention is to get people to bathe, mm. give people clean water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, roughly a thousand children die every single day due to lack of clean water. Uh, women, mainly women and girls, spend two hundred million hours every single day fetching water. Mm-hmm. So water is, you know, absolutely critical for mm-hmm. just health. Mm-hmm. There's no vaccine or medical intervention or any other intervention that, that would give the benefits that just giving clean water would. Really, absolutely. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Two, we, 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 spoke, we focus so much on those other interventions. That's right. Two point four billion people, one in three people on Earth, don't have access to clean water. Really? Yeah, one in three. Wow. So, that, so if you change that statistic, that will give the biggest impact on global health. But bathing is not just about survival. And, and there's, there's water charities that are out there doing the water.org and mm-hmm. charity yeah. water, doing great work, mainly on water for drinking, because that's yeah. for survival. Yeah. But water's about more than survival. Water, I mean, and bathing in water is about hygiene and sanitation. Mm. It's also about beauty. It's about it's just self-esteem and comfort and dignity. If you can't wash, if you can't wash off your menstrual blood or your feces and urine, you can't feel good about yourself. Mm. So it's about comfort and dignity and, and mm. um, just feeling human. But it's also about luxury. Water is fun. And in the spa industry, you know, spa is taken from the word salus per aqua, health through water. So water itself is actually a joyous thing. And, um, oh. and, and what I've realised is you can transform your own world through bathing by changing your relationship with water. So I've been doing a lot of research, both you know, exper- experiential myself and in the literature, looking at um, what I call extreme bathing. So it's bathing in ice water, yeah. um, sauna bathing, and we've, I've, just, I've got a PhD student, we're, we're doing in-depth research into sauna bathing, both with infrared saunas and traditional Finnish saunas. Whoa, 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 whoa. slow down. Infrared sauna. Yeah. What's that? Oh, that's, it's um, the latest in saunas where you have an infrared panel that just... Um, radiates infrared heat rather than using the hot rocks. Or steam or whatever. That's right. Okay. So there's a lot of different heat therapy. I mean, there's sweat lodges and hammams and steam rooms and, and traditional Finnish saunas and wood-fired saunas. So infrared saunas are the, the latest sort of technology right, yeah. um, where supposedly you sweat at a lower temperature so it's more comfortable. You sweat? At a, is that possible? I no, it is because the infrared radiates into your body so it actually vasodilates you and actually you don't have to have so much external heat to, to increase oh, so your, your body your, heat. Your arteries open up and you sweat more. Correct. Oh. Yeah. And, and sweating is really good for you. So, so you know, but, but then sweating is great and heat is great and, these, and, and there's all these things that happen, heat shock proteins and, and vasodilation and things that happen, but also cold is really good. And I think most people have a, a really strong aversion to cold. Well, that would kind of work kind of um, from an evolutionary perspective, wouldn't it? We're, we're, like cold is bad. We're... Well, ev- actually, evolutionary, we didn't yeah. have central heating. Yeah. We didn't have we didn't have um, cars <laughs> with um, you know sealed cars with um, you know controlled environments, or even you know fantastic Gore-Tex clothing and, and uh-huh. stuff. So, um, and you know, when we went to medical school, we we were taught that um, brown fat, which is the um, it's it's fat with extra mitochondria that's usually around your big blood vessels, around your aorta, in your mediastinum, uh-huh. that actually produce heat. Because the mitochondria are thermogenically decoupled in brown fat. So rather than producing ATP for energy, they just produce heat. Well, there's a few biochemical things happening. So there's two types of fat in the body, white Correct. fat and brown fat. Correct. And brown fat makes heat to keep you warm. That's right. Right, cool. And, you know, I remember in medical school, I don't know if you do, but um, we no. were taught that, that adults don't have brown fat. Brown fat is in infants and in hibernating animals. That's what we were taught. That's what we were taught. Right. Eskimos have um, more Eskimos. Plant. But and, but now what they've discovered is you can induce brown fat, and they did this in um, PET scans in Lapland reindeer herders, where they, where they find that as... <laughs> How do you find these studies? That's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's not hard to find, but, but what, what happens is as winter progresses each season, yeah. you know, each day is progressively colder than the next, yeah. and your body doesn't want you to shiver. If you're shivering musculoskeletally... You're using up energy. You're using up energy, but also you're compromising your survival ability because you can't thread a hook, you can't do things you need for survival. Right. So you need to make up base heat, and what your, your body then does is it induces brown fat production, and brown fat uses the most efficient energy source in your body. 
doesn't want to use glucose or glycogen because that's for muscle and, and brain activity. So brown fat preferentially uses white fat to produce heat. So brown fat literally sucks the white fat from your gut and your hips and, and burns it off and produces heat. But to produce brown fat, you have to get to the point where you're almost shivering. Right. Just before that point when you're shivering, you're feeling a bit shivery, then your body is saying, wow, winter's coming on. I don't want to shiver tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be colder. I better up my um, basal me- metabolic rate. I better up my thermoregulation. So you can make brown fat? You can. I didn't... Uh, yeah, that, yes. And, and that. anyone can make brown fat, but to do it, you have to ex- expose yourself to, the, to cold to the point where you're shivery. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, then do, and then increase that. And it's dramatic how... Your tolerance builds up. So I, I regularly now uh, I run workshops and retreats, and I, I take people through a two-minute ice bathing. I've, I've, hung, I've done a lot of research with Wim Hof, you know, the guy they call the Ice yeah, Man. Yeah. He spent two hours. He can spend two hours in an ice bath. So you know, and looking at that, but it's it's very easy to, to get people to do two minutes in an ice bath. So hang on, has there been research on this? If you do, uh, um, sure, with the reindeer guys, mm-hmm. herders, they increase their brown fat. But has there been research to say, well? To prove that theory that if you do ice baths, you 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 are healthier, or you do make more brown fat, or well, I mean it's hard research to do. All over the world, there are these groups of people, often they're called crazy, who swim all year round in the ocean, oh, like the icebergs, the icebergs, yeah. and yeah. They, you know they're in New York and they're in Sydney, and they're in Melbourne, Melbourne, yeah, and uh, there are, actually there's a three, few different groups in Melbourne, Mount yeah. Eliza and Black Rock, but um these these typically they don't get sick. <laughs> they, they, they swim all year round in the cold and, and they have really robust immune systems. Mm. Now, that's not research. That's just anecdotal. Total, yeah. um, however, you know, you can ask any first aider. You know, cold is a really powerful analgesic and cold is a really powerful anti-inflammatory. So oh, that's why you put ice on... Exactly. ...sprains and... That's right. Pressure sores. Yeah. So, you know, just exposing yourself to cold is, is really mm. great if you have any sort of musculoskeletal pain or chronic pain, and it's really good for inflammation. And, that's, and, that, and I've, I've had reports of people even with multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis and, and autoimmune conditions getting huge benefit from cold exposure. Right. But then also cold exposure has a lot of psychological effects mm. because cause cold is so aver- aversive to most people. Just the, the fact that you can actually expose yourself to cold um, you have to overcome this procrastination hurdle. You have to, you know, get over this sort of activation energy to actually get yourself in it. And you can, everyone, you can practice that yourself every day just with a cold shower. Mm. And, um, yeah, cold showers. I mean, James Bond does a cold shower every morning. In, in Fleming wrote that about James Bond where he says, James Bond takes Scott showers. A Scott shower is a hot shower followed by a cold shower. Yeah, also that would be cold in Scotland. Everybody wants to ask a question. <laughs> I think there has been a little bit of research, about, particularly when you're vasodilated. So say you're warm and you've been exercising and then you jump into something very cold that you, um, your blood pressure can shoot up, mm. that um, they've monitored this as a, um, a, a slightly risky um, activity is. Do you have any comments well, about what? Well, you get a monitoring. huge. You get a huge sympathetic response. You go from the warm to the cold. Once when we in, say sympathetic, it's a sympathetic nervous system that produces adrenaline. Fight and flight. Yeah. Absolutely, you get this adrenaline response. Yeah. And actually, I mean, and there is research to say that you know, sudden exposure to cold, you can die. Yeah. And that's mostly people. You know, they're on the cruise ship in the North Sea and they fall in the water and it's unintentional and they're panicking and they have this massive fight and flight response and they have a brittle cardiac rhythm. They go into an arrhythmia and they die from the arrhythmia. They don't, yeah. they don't die from the cold. So that is, that is a potential danger. Yeah. But if you're doing it in a controlled condition where you know that you're doing it, um, you, you do get an initial sympathetic response and you get this initial <gasps> indrawing of breath. And in fact, it reproduces the body chemistry and the breathing pattern of panic and anxiety. But then very quickly, and it's after about 15 seconds, um, your body realises you're not going to get out of it and your body actually relaxes and you get this huge parasympathetic response. And then your, your, blood vessels cons- um, your peripheral blood vessels constrict and your blood is maintained warm in your core. And then what happens, your brain, which normally takes 20 to 25% of all your energy, realises, hey, I'm wasting you know, this precious energy and your brain turns itself off. So it's actually your body is forcing your mind to meditate because your brain doesn't want to waste extra energy thinking. Um, you were telling me the other day about uh, elite athletes who do cryotherapy and what they like about that. It was this particular thing, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, Lauren Burns, my PhD student, we, we did a survey of multiple serial gold medalists who had won, been at the top of the world for many years. And we asked them, you know, how did, what lifestyle things do you do to maintain your 
elite performance and all of them except Lane Beachley who was a surfer who had spent a lot of time in the water that all of them and we didn't expect this said they do ice bathing and they were told to do it for recovery and it's very common in elite sports to do it for recovery but they said they didn't do it for the recovery they liked it because it was the forced mindfulness practice so when they're in the ice bath, it's, they're totally embodied and they're not thinking about anything else. They're not thinking about the competition or making the grade or whatever it is. They're just in the moment and that's what they appreciated about mm. it. Yeah. But also I think there's a, a huge benefit of getting over that hurdle. Like if, to have a cold shower, the hardest part of a cold shower is the decision to do it and then following through. <laughs> and... And you know, but it's, it's such a powerful thing. You can do it at home. But you don't need any equipment in the privacy of your own home. And, and I've invented this. You know, the, I call it the cold water hokey pokey. It's a way of having a cold shower slowly, where you just have a hot shower and just start. Just start with your left foot, and then your right foot, and then you, you gradually introduce your body. And you can do it actually very calmly. And then if you take a very big breath out as you as you immerse your Ooh. So that's a parasympathetic response, a relaxation response. So rather than <gasps> do the breathing in, you take a big slow breath out as you go into the cold water and, and you actually can relax into it. So having cold showers regularly, is it the same as practising mindfulness regularly? Well, it is. You're ex- in the practising mindfulness, you exercise the muscle. And the, the thing about mindfulness isn't trying to get your mind blank. It's noticing when it's not blank and bringing it back. That's like the bicep curl for your brain. <laughs> You know, that, that's, that's where you get the, the, you know, the exercise in the mindfulness practice. Um, and same with a cold shower, you're overcoming this procrastination um, you know, excuse. So you're exercising your ability to be comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. And then that has a, a crossover the rest of your life. You know, that difficult conversation you have to have, that, do, that thing you have to clean up or something. You know, you don't want to do it, but you're used to doing something you don't want to do and knowing that you're okay with it. And that's really powerful. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't like cold showers. I tried. I'm, I'm still, <laughs> Me too. I'm still, I've tried. That's, I, you know, I tried. Start cool. Start cool. Start on your feet yeah. and then breathe out and see how you go. I was just going to say, Mark, um, we actually do um, in psychological therapy for people who are emotionally dysregulated, we have a skill called tip your body chemistry and it is exposing yourself to extreme temperatures. Mm-hmm. So when someone's really, really angry, frustrated, we recommend a cold shower. And I agree, the, the hardest step is just getting in. But I've certainly seen success in my patients who do engage with that cold shower just to bring down that psychological arousal. Well, cold water swimming has been used for depression and that's actually a, a really good non-pharmaceutical treatment for depression. I'm going to take you a sauna, I reckon. Uh, <laughs> cold? It's just not for me. Hey, we could go on for hours about this. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming in and I sincerely apologise for the shorter segment we gave you. We had lots of sponsorship announcements. Please come back on the show and talk about this. Do I have your promise? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we, we, we've been doing it for 25 years now. <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> doing it for a while, this show. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Mark Hine, for coming into the show. Neurosepi Pen, thank you. Pascale, our newest uh, cab reporter, thank you for coming in too. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.